and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region were two, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray and let's dig into the treasure that the Lord has for us this morning. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Thank you for bringing us together that we may worship you. Uh, Lord, may we be found faithful in our reading of the text and our hearing of the text. Lord, may I be found faithful in my preaching of the text. Shut my mouth where it needs to be shut so that I do not uh, dishonor you in any sense. Lord, may we take this seriously. May we be changed because of this. Uh, may our hearts be ever turned toward you. We love you, Father. May we be a blessing to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So going back to the beginning of the text, we're looking at verses 13 through 15. We, uh, we see that Joseph gets another warning by an angel, another visit by an angel. This guy has already had uh, one before when Mary, when he was going to divorce Mary, and the angel told him, no, don't do that because she, is not, she was not unfaithful to you as you think she was. And so now he has another warning from the angel. And this angel has, uh, this warning has said, you got to run away because Herod is seeking the Christ child, this king, this rival king to Herod. He is seeking him out to kill him. So you must run. So Joseph very clearly and immediately listens. He has a very quick obedience to the word of the Lord that was brought to him. It says he rose in the night and they fled to Egypt. There's this sense of urgency, this sense of secrecy and needing to leave. And Joseph immediately listened because he saw the importance. And when it says in the scriptures that Herod is about, is searching for the child to destroy him, uh, what does it that sound like when we have a king who is seeking out children of a certain age to kill them. If you know the Old Testament, it's Moses. So we have very clear similarities there. And those are being drawn upon by Matthew. So then we see this immediate obedience. And they fly, uh, fly. They flee to Egypt. And they stay there until Herod dies. And that he's told that he, um, and where Joseph is told that Herod was, has died. And so then Matthew ends this little mini section with a fulfillment, which he does. He actually sets this up in three little mini sections where he has fulfillments uh, to end each section. Uh, fulfillments of prophecy. So in this one, he's quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. 
and that reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And so he is using three times now. Matthew uses three times that Jesus fulfills prophecy in this text that we have. And that ends each section. So then on the next section, we have Herod slaughtering the innocent children. And that reads, then Herod, starting in verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he ascertained from the wise men. If you remember last week, he pulled them aside and he's like, hey, what time? When, when did you see that star pop up? And so they told him and that's how he figured it out. And he's like, oh, two years old. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nice. Not too hard to kill. And so he learned from the wise men what age range he was aiming for. And so then again, Matthew ends this with uh, a fulfillment. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we see Herod's anger. We see the murder of all of these innocent children uh, because he is striving so hard to cling to his kingdom. And then in the fulfillment passage in Jeremiah 31, uh, we see it, can't, it comes from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He is given terrible visions. He is given terrible things to declare to Israel. And he is known as the weeping prophet because of that, because of these terrible things, these, ho- these horrible things that are coming up. And Matthew uses Jeremiah almost all the time in the tragic scenes that he, he introduces. And so in this prophecy, the main image here is Rachel. And Rachel was the wife of Jacob, the second wife of Jacob, after he had worked seven years and was tricked into marrying her older sister. And she is often in some ways known as the mother of the Israelites, as Jacob is the father of the Israelites. His name was changed to Israel. And it shows her weeping over her children. And this specifically is talking about when they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. That the, uh, but she symbolizes the mourning of all of Israel. But in that grief, there's also hope. This passage from Jeremiah comes from a larger section that is all about the restoration of Israel by Yahweh, their God. In the beginning of the chapter, about 15 verses earlier, it says in verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. And then the verses immediately following the quote of prophecy, that would be verses 16 and 17, Jeremiah 31, says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And then in fact, about 15 more verses later, and starting in verse 31, this is all about the new covenant that you might have heard me talk about a little bit, but just as God made a covenant with creation back with Adam and Eve, just as God made a covenant with Abraham, just as God made the covenant with Moses and the Israelites, just as God made the covenant with David, God is promising a new covenant. And in that covenant, he promises to renew his people. And we'll read that in just a second. Uh, But this covenant is brought about by the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, Jesus, who has been brought in. And so in Jeremiah 31, it reads this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
That would be the covenant with Moses where he gave the law to the Israelites. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Like Israel, we see that this child, Jesus, being brought out of that exile brings a new hope with him. He brings this hope of this new covenant to where instead of people turning each other back to the laws, the laws will be written on our hearts. And that happens when the Holy Spirit comes and gives us a new heart. He takes, it's talked about as being a heart of stone being taken away and being given a heart of flesh. But through that, when we are Christians, the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us. He helps us to start hating the sin that we once loved. He changes us. He shapes us. Uh, Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit. We see that as we are Christians, as we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we should have this fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should have those things within us because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us, because he has given us a new heart. The law of God becomes written on our hearts. It is not done away with with Jesus, but it is fulfilled because of Jesus. And so it is important that we understand this, that we search ourselves just to, just to see whether we have that within us. So often we can be promised that we are Christians when we actually aren't. Uh, that was me for a long time. I thought I was a Christian. I was a student leader in high school for my whole region, for my churches. Uh, I did all the right things. I, I even wore a purity ring and did all of that. I did everything, and I was so lost. And so it's important to look at ourselves to see if we are seeing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Because that is how we know that our hearts have been changed. And then we go to the final section that Matthew has here, uh, verses 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So in this section, again, we see Joseph is, uh, has an angelic appearance, just like the other two sections. And, or I'm sorry, not the other two. But this is the third angelic um, appearance to Joseph. And this one is telling him it's time to go back. Um, now he has, uh, now that Herod has died, now that his life is no longer in danger, you can go back. And so what does Joseph do? He obeys. He takes his family and moves back to Israel. But when he hears that the kingdom has been divided up, this is some of the historical data. It's not directly here in the scriptures, but we know this from historical sources. The kingdom, when Herod died, was kind of divided up a little bit in between his sons. And so in uh, Judea, you have Archelaus, which was one of Herod's sons, who was known to be 
just as vile as his father, uh, which we, from last week, if you remember, his father killed his own wife and two of his sons for, uh, for because he thought, he, there was no actual proof, but he thought that they were trying to rise up against him and uh, cast him out. So Archelaus was known as a, another vile, wicked king. But his brother was a little bit better, who was over Galilee. So Mary and Joseph decided to go to Galilee to keep their family safe. And so then we see this last fulfillment section. And this is a really interesting use of the prophetic writings because this is not a direct quote of anything. Um, and most likely is kind of a combination of two things. One might be a combination of different prophetic writings to where he's kind of just uh, summarizing the idea around it. But it's also uh, probably some wordplay. Uh, it's also a focus on this. The word Nazarene is Nazarios. And the word branch, like the branch of Jesse that will not be cast aside, is Nezer. And like in Isaiah 11, 1, there, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch of his root shall bear fruit. Talking about that Davidic covenant, that king who was promised under David, uh, from David's line. And it probably also was a little bit of this tying in of this idea of the prophets being people who are cast out of society. The prophets are never accepted. Uh, the, one, the prophets who are accepted are the ones who are false prophets and are giving the things that the people want to hear. The prophets who are actually declaring the word of God usually are killed by the kings and by the people because they don't like what they have to hear, what they have to say. And so with that in mind, then, there is this concept. Nazareth, Nazareth was a bit of a backwoods kind of place. Like, in a sense, if you called someone a Nazarene, you were almost calling them like a hillbilly or a redneck. Uh, and so when Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, hears, like first, before he was a disciple, one of the others come to him and says, hey, you got to come follow this Jesus of Nazareth guy. He is incredible. You got to come follow him. And his, he's quoted in John 1, as saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so it's probably this combination of the wordplay, the Nazarios, Nezer, to mean the Nazarene and branch of David. He's talking about that. But it's also probably trying to set up this idea that Jesus also is going to be outcast. He is outcast just like the other prophets. And that ties in really well with just everything that Matthew's trying to show, is that Jesus fulfills and perfects all of the important leaders of God's people, of Israel. He, Jesus is this fulfillment of all of these things. And we look at Adam. Back to Adam again. And right, if you were here for East, Easter, Easter, yeah, Easter, we talked about how Christ is the true and better Adam. And that how that is outlined in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, because Adam was this representative of humanity. And so as Adam sinned, all of humanity ended up sinning with him. Each of us have participated in that sin. Uh, as Adam chose for himself what was right and wrong, so do we. We say, whatever God says is right and wrong, I don't really agree with it. So I'm going to choose for myself what is right and wrong. And all of us have done that. And that's treason. And it it's, doesn't matter if it was just telling a little lie or if it was doing, uh, or if it was murdering someone. That's treason because we are going against the creator of the world, our creator. If we were to directly go against uh, the president, that's treason. 
to go against some of these things that they are bringing forth. Um, and so we can't fix that on our own. We can't be made right in the eyes of God on our own. There's no work we can do. There's no count of times that we can come into, his, uh, into the church and worship. There's no amount of joyful singing that we can do. There's no amount of anything we can do on our own to, not, uh, to make that treason right. But how would someone who's treasonous find pardon, be justified in the eyes of the law? By being pardoned. But someone has to eat that um, to eat that punishment. And so we see Jesus doing that. And that is the reason why God sent Jesus because Jesus then is a new Adam. He is the one who can represent a new humanity because he did not fall to the serpent. And we'll see in the coming weeks as he's tempted in the wilderness how Jesus stood up to Satan and prevailed three times. Whereas Adam fell on the first time. And each of us fall uh, most of the time on the first time. I would be quite surprised to find someone who actually stood up. Um, And so we see Jesus being this new Adam. But then we also see Jesus is this new Jacob, the father of Israel. And so Jacob, we see with his twin brother Esau, there's this battle, right, for this blessing and inheritance. They battle over that. Jacob was technically the second born and he tricks his brother. He tricks his father in order to get those blessings and inheritance. And this continues in Jesus and Herod. And one of the things you don't like, uh, I meant to talk about last week, but I did it. And so let's talk about it a little bit this week. Herod was what was uh, called an Idumean. He had Idumean blood in him, which is Edom. It's another name for the, town, the city of Edom, the nation of Edom. And Edom comes from Esau. Esau is the father of Edom, just as Jacob is the father of Israel. And so Herod actually isn't Israelite by birth. He is not Jewish. He is an Edomite. He is from Esau. And so we see Esau fighting back to take those blessings, the right to have this nation that God had blessed And he is fighting with all of his strength to hold on to that. And he doesn't care who he has to kill or what he has to do to cling to that. And yet we see that the one who was given the blessing, the one who was given the inheritance, Jacob and Jesus, being from Jacob, will prevail over the one who who unrighteously has it. And furthermore... What did Jacob do when his family was facing death by starvation? He turned to Egypt for salvation. And it's by the hand of God sovereignly putting Joseph into slavery and leading him to Egypt that then Egypt was prepared for the famine that was going to come. Egypt then had the storehouse of goods and the peoples around them were coming to them for aid, which included Jacob. And when he got there, when his sons got there, they found a place of, of uh, sol- uh, not solitude. He, they found a place where they could be safe, where they could be saved from the death that was coming for them. 
And so we see there as well that there is this correlation between the great leaders of the Old Testament and Jesus. And then we see that Jesus is just like Moses. And just as the Pharaoh tried to end the blessings to the Israelites by killing off the children of two and under, uh, Herod did the same thing to those around Jesus. And just as Moses was saved by being adopted and raised in Egypt, Jesus was saved by his family escaping to and raising him in Egypt. And then we see the nation of Israel. And in, in Israel, we just overarching from the entire history of Israel. We see they continuously are bringing pagan gods into their places of worship. They continuously ignore the words of God and they bring in the Asherah poles, the, the, the prophets of Baal. They bring in all of these false gods and set them up in the temple, in their places of worship. Uh, they make temples within their own nation to these gods. But what we saw last week was that Jesus brought pagan worshipers to worship the one true God. We see that flip there. And then finally with David, we see he's considered the greatest leader of all of Israel's history. And in verse 6, which we read last week, Matthew quotes Micah 5, 2, and he talks about this leader who is a great ruler, who is also a shepherd. That is a prophecy of Christ. But this leader who is also a shepherd, and who is that? In the Old Testament, it's David. He is well known for being a shepherd boy. Um, when he was anointed, he was out. When he was anointed as king, he was out watching the sheep. He had to be called in. And he was a great shepherd king. And so do you see this? Jesus is this promised one. Like I can keep saying it, but I'm trying to show you through the scriptures how this is true. He is the promised one who would defeat the snake, who would defeat the serpent, whereas everyone else falls. And there is this, this at least when I, uh, the church I grew up in, the Bible stories that we tell, the ways that we train our children, we're teaching them a moralism and using Bible stories to do that. And what we do is we lift up like Noah, we lift up David, we lift up all of these as people, as heroes of the faith. And in one sense, we can do that. But what ends up happening is that we ignore the fact that they were sin-filled men and that they were never truly the heroes. And even in their own stories, they're not the heroes. God is. And so what we have to do is one of the things I had to do was disentangle this idea that I was just like David or I was just like Noah and all of these and the good things and that I was the hero of the story. And I had to disentangle from that because of church and because of the ways that I was taught. And so let's do better with our children. Let's teach them that God is the hero of every story and that there is actually a thread throughout the entire Bible as I've been putting forward, maybe not clearly, but as I've been putting forward that there's this thread throughout the entire Bible that is tied together that leads directly to Christ. And in every, maybe not every story of the Old Testament, but all throughout the Old Testament, there are things that are pointing us to the need for Jesus. It's not about how good the Israelites were because they were not Read the book of Judges. Read the books of Kings or Chronicles, either of those. Read any of that, and you will see how quickly the Israelites turn away from God. Read uh, Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, and read about David's life and see how wicked he could be. See the ways that he sinned and fell. See, read Noah's story at the end. It seemed that he was this righteous man. He was called a righteous man, and then at the end, he fell into sin. 
So read these stories with an understanding that they are not heroes and neither are you. You're not David. Goliath in your life, like you're not to be looking at Goliaths in your life. None of us have ever actually faced a giant that we had to kill. There are some things we can pull from that to, be, to help us, but we're not the hero of the story. If anything, we're the Israelites if we're in this story, the ones who are cowering on the side that David tells off for their fear. So let's remember that as we're reading these things, that Jesus is the hero. He is the one who is the true and better David. He is the one who is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Jacob, the true and better Noah, the true and better Moses. All of these stories were developed. God sovereignly had these stories developed to point us to the need for someone who is even greater than these great leaders, someone who is greater than us. We have to stop looking within ourselves for what we think is right and wrong. We have to. And as our culture pushes further and further into that, we need to stand strong and look to the Lord for what is right and wrong. So this passage then also introduces a fourth major theme. Uh, We talked about it at the beginning. Uh, The first three is God is sovereign. The second one, uh, Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the third one, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but of the whole world. And this one introduces a fourth major theme that you will find throughout all of Matthew and that you should keep in mind as you're reading Matthew. And it's this thought, this understanding that evil is rampant in our world. The effects of sin is far-reaching. It is wicked. It is deep-reaching to where you see people like Herod, who is willing to murder two-year-olds, all the two-year-old boys of his, of his empire, of his uh, nation. It's wicked. We have two-year-olds in our church. I have two-year-olds. And to think of someone trying, like dragging them out of my arms and killing them. It's wicked. But it's not just relegated to that. Like in our world, there are evils that are being accepted as good. We are killing children before they even have the chance to see the light of day. And praise God that we are able to um, see some light from that. And historically, Christians have been able to go to the places that the children were cast out into the wilderness and rescue the children and raise them. And we're not even being given that opportunity. So we have to just understand that evil is rampant in our world and it will be until Christ returns. There are things that we can do. We are to fight back with the light, with truth and with justice and with love. I'm not saying we go out and we burn down abortion clinics. Not at all. I'm not saying that we go on social media and we tell people how stupid they are for believing different other things than what we believe. Not at all. I'm not arguing for that. I am saying, though, that we stand firm in truth, but with a peace that comes from being rooted, from having a foundation that cannot be shaken. And if we come out just swinging our fists Who's going to listen to us? We need to hear the arguments, engage with them, and use the wisdom, the minds that God has given us to be able to respond well and respond in a winsome way to where we can win people over just even by them seeing the ways that God has changed our lives and the ways that we talk and engage. We should be different from the world in that. And too often, I'm in Christian groups on social media and stuff, 
it's toxic. <laughs> it is a cesspool just like any other group. And so we need to be aware of that. This new kingdom that Matthew is introducing, that Christ is bringing in, is going to be in constant opposition to the rampant wickedness that we see in Herod, that we see in other leaders. Uh, Christians must stand up and stand firm. And in one way that we see Christians standing firm is that uh, one of the reasons why um, in South, South Africa, why legislation was pushed through to end segregation, to end the, the wickedness of racism, uh, at least in the legislative sense, is that the churches refused communion to those who were actively involved in promoting that and promoting racism. They refused it. They said, you are in sin and you are actively living in sin by hating uh, those who are made in the image of God. And that, and they said, unless you are willing to change and fight for what is right, you are not a member of this church. You are not a member of God's family. And think if we would have done that in the U.S. Even our own uh, convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, it was originally founded so that they could send slave owners as missionaries because the Northern Baptists wouldn't allow it. And praise God, the Southern Baptists have repented of that openly and profusely. Um, but think if our churches would have stood firm in that. We could have seen change. And in the same way, we must stand firm as the church. And the most clear way that we see evil being rampant is in the crucifixion of Christ that's coming forward and where he's being sentenced to death by the wicked people. The wicked people are casting judgment on the only pure, true, truly good person. So the world is characterized by evil and don't expect otherwise. Why would the world act like Christians? If there truly is this new covenant where God gives us a new heart and he writes his law upon our hearts when we are regenerated, when we become Christians, then why would we expect others to act like Christians when they haven't been given this new heart? We shouldn't be shocked when the world acts like the world. And it is good and right for us to actively stand against sinful practices that lead to the destruction of our humanity, like the denial of right and wrong and things like abortion and sexual practices and whatever other wicked practices we can dream up in our world. It's good and right, but we can't let those issues dominate us more than the gospel. Because what people need most is the gospel. We have to recognize that until Christ returns, evil will always be surrounding us. And the best response is not picketing, although... I'm not saying there's not a place for that, which I, I do think there is, but rather the proclamation of the gospel. That is the right response. So how does one become a child of God? It's through believing the gospel. And in the New Testament, in one of Paul's letters, we, he says, how can they hear the gospel if no one speaks? And how can someone speak if no one is sent? And so we must live as people who are just saturated so much in the gospel that it overflows out of us so that it lies in Romans 1.16 when it says the gospel is the power to save people. So that just naturally in our lives, this good news overflows and that those who Christ has died for, when they hear those words being spoken, 
they hear the voice of Christ. They hear the voice of their shepherd and they respond. Let our lives be so full of the gospel that we just overflow with this good news that can save people. But expect opposition and be prepared for it. But don't be prepared in a way that's just focused on winning the argument. Like, man, I own those atheists. Prepare in a way that's marked by a belief in the true words of Romans 1.16 again. The gospel is the power to save. I have a firm foundation. The gospel will save people. It's not me. It's not my good arguments. It's none of that. It is the gospel and it's the Holy Spirit renewing their lives that saves people. So you prepare to face that opposition by first believing the gospel and then by letting those implications of the gospel overflow into all the aspects of your life. The final point that I have for this morning is that God takes care of his children. God is sovereign. He's not surprised when things uh, pop up. He wasn't surprised by Herod's decision to try to kill the children. He wasn't surprised by Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. And uh, the famous lines at the end of that story uh, where they are come together, we often quote it as, what you meant for evil, God used for good. But if you actually look in Genesis and you look to that and read it, it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So even when we face hardships in our lives, this is the opposite of so many of the most popular teachers and preachers, the ones you'll find on YouTube or on TBN or wherever. This is the opposite of it. But what you will find as a Christian is not that God always has this physical favor for you to where you get money, to where you get good things, to where even just in your family, every, all your relationships will be right if you just do the right things for God. What God has given for his children is sometimes and often hurt and pain because sin is rampant in the world and it's rampant in our hearts. And sometimes we have to look right into the eyes of pain and grief to know that we have a foundation that actually goes far deeper than what that pain and grief can rock. And sometimes your faith is only tested in those hard times. And by and large, your faith is only tested when you have to test it. And so when you come up against hard things in your life, when you come up against financial troubles, even if it's not of your own doing, when you come up against all of these difficulties in life, is your first response, God, why are you doing this to me? I've taken my kids to church. I read the Bible every day. I pray over all my meals. Why are you doing this to me? Or is it, Lord, please help me through this. Nothing happens that's outside of God's plan. God has always had a plan and he's always worked to ensure that that plan came to fruition. And sometimes that means saving his people from hardship. And sometimes that means allowing his people to endure hardship. But this means that if you're a child of God, you can still rejoice in these hard things because God is working all things together for good according to his purposes. And that one day, the whole earth will be redeemed and renewed and all sin will be destroyed. And no longer will we have to fight against the serpent that deceived Eve because Satan himself will be destroyed. 
So this, real quick, this really first became real to me about 10 years ago first when I thought I was doing the right things. I thought I was in the will of God, but really I was just doing things for myself. And God rocked my world by making my brain bleed. Um, I could have died, all of that, but the Lord kept me through it. And in that, that was the most painful time of my life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. There are times when I'm in the hospital that <laughs> all the flashbacks start coming back and things that I haven't remembered for almost a decade, they come back and I'm like, oh man, I hate this. But that pain is what solidified my faith in the Lord. Um, about eight years ago, I was on a mission trip to Haiti with, uh, for my school and everything. And so as we're flying, we're in this giant Airbus. Like, it's a big plane. Three rows of seats, all of that. And as we're flying, we hit some serious turbulence. Like, listen, I'm my ride warrior. I love roller coasters, you know? Like, I cried when they closed the top thrill drive store at Cedar Point. I'm just kidding. I didn't cry, but it was, it was sad to me because I love that roller coaster. If you haven't ridden it, you sit there. And it does like three, two, one, go. And one, as soon as you go, it takes off at like 125 miles per hour or something like that. And it's like a 10 second ride. It takes off real fast, shoots you up a 400 foot hill and then down the other side and that's it. And that is, I love that roller coaster because it was thrilling. So listen, I'm not scared of these sorts of things. But in this Airbus, we are like, I can feel myself like pressing against my seatbelt as I'm lifting. And I am white knuckling, like I'm terrified. And I don't get terrified, even with the turbulence. I'm like, ooh, you know, but that's it. With this, I am scared. And as I'm like pressing myself into the seat, grabbing my seat arms, this thought just passes my mind that even if I die in such a way that seems so pointless, I am in the will of God. And God has proven over and over again that he can use someone's death far more than he can use their life. And if that is my purpose in life, I am content. And I almost laughed, like just sitting there. I went from like white knuckling to just this peace and this joy of knowing this. And then last year, I was at work and I get a call from a friend of ours who I knew was hanging out with Alicia and the boys. I'm like, this probably isn't good. And it turned out that Isaiah had a seizure at the park and they were rushing him to the hospital with an ambulance. And um, so I get in my car and I'm driving, I'm getting there. And the whole way there, I'm just saying, please God, save my son. We didn't know what was going on. Uh, it ended up not being anything major, but in that time, I'll, that's all I could think. Lord, please save my son. And then at the end of it, he had a, had a second seizure in my arms, which is terrifying as a parent. And at the end of it, that night though, I was able to lay down with him in his bed, help put him to sleep, and all I could think about was how grateful I was to God that I could sleep, but that I lay down next to my son and help put him to sleep. So grateful for my son's life and for who he was and that we still got some more time with him. And instead of that pain, that fear leading me to hate God, it turned me to love God and to be grateful to God. Sometimes it doesn't turn out that well, I understand. But 
even in those times. Seek for perspective when you have none. And it can be hard when you're in the midst of pain and suffering. But seek for the Lord's perspective on it. Uh, seek for a perspective that you can only be given when, you're, when you have some history between you and the event. Look for that. And pray for the Lord to help you to see that. So, in your life, in Jesus' life, in your children's lives, in your parents' lives, God's plan involves suffering. You won't escape that. And you have to recognize that that is the truth. Otherwise, you will be led astray by these false teachers. And so, may we be those who trust in the Lord for our strength, for our um, sustenance, and for the times when the world seems very, very dark. May we be light bringers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Thank you for sending Christ that we may be blessed through him, that we may be like the nations of the earth, all, that we may be part of the nations of the earth who are blessed through Abraham's uh, lineage, that we may partake and know that we have truth and satisfaction in the future, that you win, and that there will finally be peace. And that while we may not experience that in our own lives, that we will experience it at the end of the age. So, Father, we are so grateful for you, to you for that. Lord, for those who are found in you this morning, I pray that they may be strengthened by this and that they may come away with more love and knowledge of you. Uh, that they may stand up against the hard times, the struggles, the trials, and come away stronger in their faith with the blessing of knowing that they will turn to you in their times of struggle and not to their own means. Father, we thank you for all that you do. You are so good to us. And Lord, as we are about to take communion this morning, uh, we pray your blessing upon the elements, that we, uh, as the elements have come from uh, a sense of unity, that they are representative of Christ's body and blood, Lord, may we be unified as a church. May we glorify you through the ways that we uh, take communion and recognize our unity in Christ. May we be a blessing to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, usher, or those who are handing out the elements for communion, if you would come forward. Uh, the children are going to be coming back up so that we can take communion together as a church for those who are with them. Uh, and so the Bible gives us some important things while we're waiting for everyone to come up. Uh, you guys can start uh, handing out the elements. Uh, yeah. The Bible gives us some important things to think about when we are taking communion. Uh, one of the things it talks about is that if you're not a Christian, um, you aren't to take this this is a sense of this is meant to be not a way of keeping you out of like a party but rather that you haven't accepted the invitation to come in um, and this is a way to honor at, at the very least if you're not a Christian honor us in that please um, and uh, even if you don't care about honoring Christ uh, or if you have contention with a brother or sister in the church 
don't take the communion before you settle that. Uh, it is very clear that we are to work to resolve our differences. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 7, 11, starting in verse 27, it reads this. Whoever eats the bread or drinks of, of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge, judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And Paul is just telling us, look to yourself. Look at yourself. Uh, judge for yourself rightly or wrongly, whether you are uh, rightly, whether you are a Christian, so that you may not may be the judge ultimately, and not have to face the judgment of God. And so, as Christians, as we're to take communion, we're told to look in a multitude of different ways. One of the ways we're told to look is backward. We're told to look back at uh, to Christ's body and blood that was given for us on the cross. So we should be looking to that. We think about that. Dwell on that. Think of what Christ has done for you, why his body was broken, why his blood was shed. And as we take that communion, dwell on that and think of on that. And then we're also told to look outward, to celebrate this unity that we are given in Christ to one another, to celebrate the family bond that we share with brothers and sisters in Christ and in our local church. Um, then we're told to look upward, to realize that we will be lifted up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places along with Jesus, our heavenly host, the one to whom we bring our hungry hearts for nourishment with the grace of the new covenant. We are also told to look inward, to examine our hearts, to ensure we're walking in faith and repentance and living with love for our brothers and sisters. And we're told to look forward, to wait and hope for the glorious day when we will celebrate the fulfillment of all God's promises at his heavenly banquet. So dwell on those things. If there is any contention with someone here, please solve it. First Corinthians 11, just before the passage that we just read, starting in verse 23, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's go ahead and let's pray and then let's sing our closing song. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for what he accomplished on the cross. Not only for each of us individually in bringing us to salvation, but also in each of us corporately in bringing us together as a body, as a family, as the flock under the true shepherd. Father, thank you for not withholding even your own son in your plan to redeem us to you, that we may one day walk with you as you walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. Lord, may we love the unity that Christ has offered to us, the forgiveness of our sin, the ways that we have sinned against you, first and foremost, but also against our brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for sending Christ to give us new hearts that we may know life. That we may not be lost with dead stone hearts, but may be given hearts of flesh that know you because you dwell within us. Thank you so much for all that you do. May we worship you with gladness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and let's sing our final song.